0: You will open with me in your Bibles to Psalm 19. Psalm 19. It's good to be back with everyone. I wish I was feeling in uh, some better shape. Um, Africa was good, the work in uh, Malawi. Um, is continuing to do well, and then when I returned, Kentucky decided to greet me with a 110 degree heat index and um, uh, some bug floating around. So uh, we will uh, pray to the Lord that he will um, give us strength, help us to uh, endure, and help us to understand uh, the psalm that we're in this morning. We are uh, in Psalm 19. As I said a moment ago, we are um, picking back up Uh, in the book of Psalms where we've left off. And uh, we will begin our time by uh, reading the text together, uh, beginning in verse one, and we'll read down uh, through the whole psalm. So Psalm 19, you can see in your Bibles, is a Psalm of David. And David here is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And we read beginning in verse one, The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Let's go again to the Lord. your word teaches us that in your grace and mercy you have condescended to us to reveal yourself to reveal yourself through your works of creation and to reveal yourself most especially in and through your word and the word of god jesus christ i pray lord that we would be a people never forsake receiving the revelation that you give to us again both in creation and in your word would you help us this morning to understand how you speak to your people give us strength today we pray in jesus name amen This morning, as you can see from uh, the title above, we come to a psalm that teaches us about the revelation of God. Or how it is that God makes Himself known to people in the world. The doctrine of revelation is not a doctrine that is in any way unclear in Scripture. And yet, it is still the case that even in many Christian circles, there remains a lot of confusion about it. For one thing, Scripture makes it very clear that God has to reveal Himself if He is to be known at all. Which is to say that no one can ever think their way to the knowledge of God. We cannot use philosophy. We cannot use logic or any of the powers of the intellect to ascend on a ladder to heaven and to a knowledge of God. All of the greatest philosophical minds who have even attempted to do such a thing, whether you think back all the way to the days of the Greek philosophers like Plato and Aristotle, or you think of some of the more recent ones like Kant and Hegel. All of them have reasoned their way only as far as their minds can take them, which is no higher than a God who is made in their own image and whom they're comfortable with, and whom they can tame with a stroke of a pen. The pursuit of trying to reason your way to God is nothing more, inevitably, than a pursuit in idol-making. You cannot, again, find your way to God through your mind. What Scripture teaches and Really, what any sound reason would tell us is that if God is ever to be known, he must condescend to make himself known to his creatures. But of course, the question is how does he do this? How can we know him? How can we know what his will is? And there are some Christians who believe that God speaks today with a kind of still, small voice in our hearts. He whispers His will to them. He he may give them strong feelings, and those feelings are like a personal revelation from on high. You will many times hear people saying things very clearly like God told me this or God told me that. And very often it is some strong intuition or strong feeling that they're referring to and they're interpreting this as the Word of God. And yet, if you press these Christians strong enough, you will find that there is virtually no distinction between the thoughts that are just in their own heads and the will of God. Or to put it another way, they equate ultimately their own desires with what the will of God is and inevitably end up serving a God made in their own image. I remember a while ago, this is probably around time when I had only been a Christian for about a, a year or so, when I was having a conversation with a man who swore that the Spirit of God spoke to him in a very audible kind of way. And he would often go on and on about these various dreams and visions that he would receive from God. He claimed to have prophetic gifts, and yet on every single point of Christian orthodoxy, he was a heretic. He didn't even believe in the truths of the Word of God. He was a part of the Word of Faith movement, and he believed that God could only act in this world if we, His creatures, permitted Him to. That's far beyond anything closely resembling orthodoxy. That is, in every sense of the word, heresy and false doctrine. He believed that God's will as well was that every single one of his people were to be healthy, were to be financially wealthy, and if they weren't, it was because they lacked faith in him. So he was, again, in every sense of the word, not even an Orthodox Christian. And yet he was claiming that the spirit of god spoke through him and i was talking to him one day about his beliefs and i was trying to reason with him from the scriptures but he never wanted to look at the scriptures again he had his own personal revelations all of his beliefs were matters of this personal revelation it was the spirit of god who was speaking directly through him and was telling him all the things you ought to do and believe and so in jest and probably in a little bit of frustration as well I told him in the midst of our conversation the Spirit of God has just spoken to me I have received a revelation and do you know what the Spirit of God has said the Spirit says that on every point that you're making you're wrong And then the question was, if the Spirit of God is telling me this, and the Spirit of God is telling you something quite the opposite, how are we to determine what is true? Are we both wrong? Or is one of us wrong and one of us is right? Of course, we have, we have to discern. We have to evaluate whatever private revelations we think we are having in light of scripture but as i said these things to him it was as if like this possibility had never crossed his mind before that this could even happen so i eventually confessed to him my sarcasm and i explained the reason why everything must be tested in light of scripture private personal revelations are never a substitute for the word of God and many people are constantly searching for revelation apart from the word of God which inevitably leads them into all kinds of dangerous errors and deception one thing I can never get out of my mind is the warnings that Paul gives in 2 Thessalonians about the kinds of things that will be prominent in the world with the rise and the coming of the lawless one. He says in chapter 2 that because people refuse to welcome and receive the truth, the Word of God, because they don't love it, because they don't want it, God in judgment sends them a strong delusion to believe. He confirms them in their unbelief. And they flock after all manners of false signs, false wonders, and false revelations. They are led astray by false teachers again because they refused to love the truth it is a dangerous thing when we start relying upon our own intuitions or our own feelings or what we perceive is the word of god to us in our minds and neglect the truth that is revealed in his word scripture never teaches us to look within to know God. It teaches us that God makes Himself known to the world. And He does so in two ways in particular. One way is through what is known as general revelation or natural revelation. And the other is through what is known as special revelation. Revelation. And it's these two types of revelation that Psalm 19 is speaking about, and that I want to look at together this morning. In fact, you could easily divide this whole Psalm into these two basic parts. Verses 1 to 6 is speaking on the subject of general revelation, and verses 7 to 14 is about special revelation and again it's these two subjects that I want us to consider together this morning so first of all let's begin by considering the subject of general revelation now just by way of definition general revelation refers to the fact that God makes himself known through creation or that truths about God are known in and through the things that he has made the apostle Paul speaks of this very fact in Romans chapter 1 verse 20 when he says of God for his invisible attributes Namely, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. How, Paul, how are these things made known? He goes on, in the things that have been made. And so he says that all men are without excuse No one can ever say that they have no justification at all for believing in God. What Paul is saying is that creation itself is screaming at you about the nature of God and His divine attributes. Creation bears witness to the Creator just like a piece of art Art bears witness to an artist. Or just like a a piece of music, bears witness to the fact that there's a musician who's composed it. This is what David is speaking about in the first six verses of this psalm. He is here pointing to the heavens. He's pointing us to the sky above as an example of creation revealing something about God and one of the things that we can note here about general revelation is that it is always universal in nature which means that all men everywhere receive this same revelation again this is not something that just comes to some people and not to others this is Revelation that goes out for all men to see. Notice with me in verse 3, for example, where David refers to the sky above as having speech and words, and none of its words go unheard. Everyone can equally hear what it says. Or in verse 4, he says there their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. Literally he says their line goes out through all the earth, which could refer to a kind of measuring line, but it also has the idea of elementary teaching, as it's also the case when God speaks of having to talk to his people like their infants. In Isaiah chapter 28, verse 10, and he describes having to teach them as, as though he's speaking to them precept upon precept, line upon line. The line has the idea of a kind of elementary principle or an elementary um, fact of teaching. And the point is that even the sky above us teaches... All men, very simple, elementary truths about God. Again, general revelation is universal in nature. Everyone can hear and see the same message. In verses five to six, David points to the sun as another example. He uses three ideas to describe the sun's beauty and swiftness and power. That of a bridegroom, that of a sprinter, and its heat. And again, we see the universal reach of this work of creation. He says there is nothing hidden from its heat. General revelation. It's common to all people. But let's consider further what the content of this general revelation is. We find this described for us in verse 1. David says there, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. The creation points all men to the knowledge of the glory of God, again, it displays His power, His beauty, His eternal nature. The temporal nature of the world requires that there be an eternal Creator. It's power, as we just think for a moment about the power that is contained within the sun and the moon and the stars. It's power points us to a creator who is far more powerful than anything we can see in creation. And its beauty reveals to us the infinite beauty of the master painter. One can think of other examples of creation as well. That there is a day and a night. That there are seasons like a winter and a summer. These things reveal to everyone that the God who has created all things is a God of order. And similarly, that there are natural laws that govern the universe. One could think of just something as obvious as the law of gravity. This also reveals to all people that God is a God of order. One of the more recent discoveries that we can think of concerns the subject of DNA. Every single living organism has a genetic code that determines what its features will be. What its nature is. And the fact that there is code at the foundation of all life reveals the fact that there is intelligence. That has made all things. It points us to the wisdom of God. It points us to the fact that our God is a God who speaks. Again, language, code, is at the root, at the bottom of all things. Which tells us, again, that God communicates. We could go on with many more examples, but the point is this. All of creation communicates an elementary message. It reveals basic truths. And the most fundamental truth that it reveals concerns the glory of God. And this fundamental truth has profound many Profound implications for us. For one thing, it means that there is no true apprehension of nature if this most basic message is rejected. Creation is telling us, speaking to us, informing us, declaring to us things about God. Again, it pours out speech, David says. It declares the glory of God. And so if a man dedicates his whole life to studying some part of nature, if he's a biologist who studies the nature of living organisms, or if he's an astronomer who studies the galaxies whatever his focus is in, if he has become a world-renowned expert in his field, if he's publishing books and articles and he's acquired a kind of encyclopedic knowledge of the universe, but he never allows himself to see the glory of God in all these things. He has risen no higher than a fool. He has not grasped the basic message that nature is screaming at him. He has not understood what God is revealing in and through the world, which is His glory. Now, it makes sense for an unbeliever to do this. It makes sense for an unbeliever to say, I'm going to pay no attention at all to the fundamental message that nature is screaming at me. It is the nature of the unbelieving mind to shut away all knowledge of God. In fact, that's what Paul tells us fallen man does in Romans chapter 1. He suppresses every single aspect of truth that comes to Him. He enjoys His sin. He loves His unrighteousness. And by His unrighteousness, He closes His eyes and shuts His ears to everything that God reveals to Him in the world. In His sin, He is purposely closing his mind off to what God has given him. It makes sense for a secularized world to argue that nature can and should be studied without any ideas of God intruding into its work. What doesn't make sense, however, is when Christians adopt that same idea. That makes no sense at all. It makes no sense when a Christian comes to believe that you can in fact segregate the study of science or history or music or the arts or nature or anything else away from theology and the study of God. What doesn't make sense is when a Christian can say along with the secularist that there can be a legitimate, neutral approach to knowledge that is intentionally excluding the message of the glory of God. That's not neutral. There's no such thing as that kind of neutral approach. That is a purposeful denial of Psalm 19. A purposeful rejection of what God tells us. Nature, again, creation, reveals, it speaks, it communicates a message. And if our starting assumption is that we're going to approach the study of the world and the study of nature by rejecting its most elementary message about the glory of God, we're deceiving ourselves into thinking that we're ever actually acquiring true knowledge we may have learned a lot of random facts but we haven't understood what those facts are about we become in many ways no different than the liberal bible scholar who studies the language of the bible who studies the history of the bible who studies the interpretation of the bible and fails to understand what the Bible is about. Namely, God. That happens all the time. Many of the most quote-unquote scholarly biblical organizations or, 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 or biblical studies organizations are run, are operated by people who do not know God at all. That is a horrible state to be in. To be so close to the Kingdom of God. To to, to be reading this week in and week out. Studying it. Researching it. And yet, never coming into the Kingdom. It's a horrible state to be in. And yet, even Christians can do this when it comes to general revelation. Again, all of creation is from God and it's about God. Colossians chapter 1, verse 16 says, for by Christ all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Notice, all things were created through Him, and for Him. All creation, for Him. We cannot be conservatives when it comes to the Bible. We we believe the message of the Bible. We believe this is God speaking here. That's what I mean by conservatives with the Bible. We can't be conservatives when it comes to the Bible and liberals when it comes to creation. We cannot say that the study of Scripture with an assumption that God is not needed, that's an error, while the study of creation with an assumption that God is not needed, that's objective or that's neutral. Particularly when Scripture itself will not allow us this position. Because it is Scripture that tells us that creation is the work of God, about God, and for God. So friends, I would exhort you today, as common as it is in our culture, to believe that the study of the world can be legitimately done apart from the knowledge of God. You need to reject that idea. You need to reject it outright. That's not what Scripture teaches us. And it has never been the historical Christian position and is certainly, again, not a biblical one. It is a novel approach that is only the fruit of about 100 years of secularization. And so when you're thinking about the world, when you're studying the world, when you're teaching and training and educating your children about the world and about nature, Do not jettison the general revelation that God gives us through it. Do not repudiate or isolate the basic message that nature teaches us about God. But train yourselves. Train your children to be wise. To heed the speech of creation that declares to us the glory of God. Receive that message, accept it, and delight in it. And point others to the glory of God through it. So, that's general revelation. The fact that creation itself bears witness to all men about the glory of God. But there's also what is called special revelation. Special revelation is what God reveals about Himself in and through the Word. General revelation gives us a kind of general knowledge about God. But again, as I mentioned earlier, that knowledge is always suppressed by the unbelieving mind. There is no sense, in other words, in which general revelation can ever be saving. Which is to say that no one comes ultimately to a true saving knowledge about God and Christ and the gospel through creation. Again, creation bears witness to us about certain attributes of God's divine nature. But no one, no one can depend upon the revelation that comes in nature alone to come to know God in a saving way, especially when we have sinful hearts that are constantly closing our own eyes to to that knowledge. For a saving knowledge of God and for a true understanding of who he is and what his works are, in fact, for a True understanding about the nature of general revelation, one needs special revelation. One needs the Word of God through which He speaks to His people. And this is what David goes on to speak about in the second half of the Psalm. In verses seven to nine, David here is referring to every aspect of God's Word. at the the time when he was writing this. He speaks, you can see there, of the law, or the Torah, the instruction of the Lord. This refers to the first five books of David's Bible, Genesis to Deuteronomy. He speaks of the testimony of the Lord, which refers to the ten words, the ten commandments that were placed in the Ark of the Covenant, and bear witness to the character of God. He speaks of the precepts of the Lord. Referring to the words that deal with matters of justice. And he speaks of the commandment of the Lord. This is another word referring broadly to all of what God requires. He speaks also of the fear of the Lord, which very often refers to our obedience to the Word of God. And he speaks of the rules of the Lord. Referring to the many case laws that reflect his justice many of those which we've been reading through in the book of Deuteronomy the point is that he's using a variety of different words to refer to all of God's revelation in scripture and what is it that scripture does he says it revives the soul or restores the soul it makes one wise. It rejoices the heart. It enlightens the eyes. And it endures forever. It is Scripture, which is the special revelation of God that reveals to us the fullness of God's character. Reveals to us what His plans are in the world. What His promises have been. How He's keeping those promises. It reveals to us what He requires of all men. And it reveals to us how we can have life with God. Scripture is what God uses to bring people to Himself in a saving way. It is from Scripture that we come to hear the Gospel. Either as it was revealed, in the very beginning, Genesis 3.15, the very first promise of the Gospel, or as it is revealed in its fullness in the New Testament, for example. As it reveals to us the Gospel. And as the Apostle Paul says, what does he say in Romans chapter 1? It's the Gospel. It's the power of God for salvation. So a person can only come to know God personally through Scripture, through special revelation. Either through reading it, right, or, or, or hearing it proclaimed somehow. But we also find in this psalm that it is the Word of God that plays a vital role in our sanctification. Right? So, so not only it not only brings us to a saving knowledge of God in the beginning, but it's also the Word of God that continues to sanctify us matures us grows us up into maturity in christ jesus prayed for this very same thing to happen in his high priestly prayer when he prayed to the lord his his father father sanctify them in your truth your word is truth right it's the word that both brings us to god and makes us more like him David says in verse 11 that by them that is by the Lord's instruction his testimony his commandment his word by them your servant is warned the word of God is what teaches us about the nature of sin it teaches us about the dangers and the consequences of sin it teaches us these things both in an objective sense as matters to know and understand and comprehend with our minds but it also the word of God also searches us right? it's a living word it's not just words on a piece of paper that hang out from a distance and we can kind of memorize them and they have no real effect on us no it is it's a living word it opens up our hearts It's like a surgeon's scalpel that opens us up and lays us bare before God. In fact, Hebrews chapter 4 speaks of this very matter. Verses 12 to 13. It says there that the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight but all are naked and exposed to the eye of Him to whom we must give an account. So God uses His Word to convict us when we have sinned. To guard us from committing sin. And to instruct us positively in the ways of righteousness. And so when David goes on to petition the Lord to keep him from presumptuous sins and to keep him blameless and innocent, he's not asking the Lord to do this for him apart from the Word, but by and through the Word. It would be a rather absurd prayer, in fact, to ask the Lord. Lord, would you guard me from transgressions? Would you guard me from sin? And you don't read the Word to find out what those transgressions and sins actually are. Yet that can often be the case. It can often be how people approach their Christian walk. Their growth in holiness. As if it's just something that can be lived out with a neglect of the Word of God. They leave their Bibles on the nightstand collecting dust and they expect that God will keep them from sin while they're neglecting his word he's not going to keep you from sin if you're in the midst of sinning by neglecting his word right you need the word to know what sin is it will never be the case that we are marked by being those who neglect his word david says that god's word is to be desired more than gold and the drippings of the honeycomb, he has given to us his word, his special revelation, so that by it we might know him, so that by it we might know what his will is. You know, there's, it's very often the case that in his word, you know, he tells us explicitly, "This is what my will is." You know, some, sometimes people are wondering, you oh, know, I wonder what God's will is for my life. You know, and there's plenty of places where it tells you. For example, I. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, I always remember that one because Paul says, this is the will of God for you, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, right? That's his will. He says it in his word. He's given it to us so that we might know him, so that we might be guarded from sin. So we need to, we need to get the word inside of us, right? We need to read it, we need to listen to it. We need to meditate on it. Memorize it. Live according to it. And in this way, God will progressively conform us more and more into the image of Christ. He Guards us from sin. Works in us righteousness. Ultimately, with the, with the end result that our very own lives and words will also accurately reflect and bear witness to the glory of God. This is what we actually see, finally, in verse 14 at the end of the psalm. As David heeds the general revelation of creation, bearing witness to the glory of God, and as he heeds the special revelation of the Word of God, which leads him to go on to seek Forgiveness for his sins and to walk in God's ways. He then prays for his own speech to be acceptable to God. He says at the end, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in Your sight, O Lord, my Rock and my Redeemer. What is he asking here? What What is... What is David ultimately seeking at this point? Well, he's seeking to bear witness to the glory of God in his own life in the same way that all of creation bears witness to the glory of God and in the same way that the Word of God bears witness to the glory of God. He is seeking, he's desiring... That his own life would be conformed to God's revelation that's coming through in creation and that's coming through in Scripture. If you just think about it for a moment, friends, we are those who were made in the image of God, right? We are made to reflect God's character, God's rule in the world. But because of our rebellion, we're like the only thing in all of creation that's not bearing a true witness to who God is. The heavens are declaring His glory. The sun is declaring His glory. The, the, The animals of creation obey His every command. They're bearing witness to His glory. His Word bears witness to His glory. And fallen man, bears false witness to His glory. That's the consequence. That's the corrupt nature of sin. And David's saying, he doesn't want to be like that. He wants to join in with the witness to God's glory that is seen in creation and is seen in His Word. He wants his own speech, his own words, his own meditation. To be acceptable to God, to be something that bears witness to his glory. Now, th- think about this as well. What is the aim of the whole Christian life? What's the, the end goal that we're all moving to? Right? First John chapter three. You can think about this. This is what, what John tells us. When Christ appears. We will be like Him. Because we will see Him as He is. That's what all of our lives, that's the direction everything is moving towards. Being perfect images. Being just like Christ. Reflecting the glory of God on earth. In and through His image bearers like, like ourselves. That is the goal, the aim of the Christian life. And therefore our whole lives now are to be oriented towards that aim. We also desire or ought to be desiring that we would say and do nothing that bears false witness to who God is. Think about the many commands, for example, that are, often given to, that are also given to Christians. right? How we're to treat one another we forgive one another. Why? As God in Christ has forgiven you. So, So when the Christian is living contrary to that, has no desire at all to reconcile with brothers and sisters they're at odds with, when they have no desire to forgive one another, no intention to pursue that, they're bearing false witness to who God is and to the power of the Gospel. Every single command that we're given in the Word calls us to reflect who God is in the world. And in that way, we act, we, we serve as lights in the world. So that it, it should be the case. It, it should be the case, friends. That as, as unbelievers, look at your life, look at my life, look at the lives of Christians they should be able to see at least a glimpse of Christ. Right? It may not be in perfection, like the Mount of Transfiguration, and we're all just shining brightly, but there should be an aspect where, where they can look and they can see. These, these people, they love truth like Christ loves truth. They love their neighbors like Christ loves His neighbors. Right? They, they give their lives for one another as Christ gave His life. They, they forgive one another as As God in Christ forgives them, they're they're kind to one another. As God in Christ is kind to them. You see what I'm saying? There should be a reflection of who God is in our own lives. And when we're we're living contrary to that, we're, we're actually bearing false witness to who God is. So this is what David's desiring. As he's meditating on creation. And the message that it's bearing, that it's giving about the glory of God as he's meditating upon the Word of God. Bearing witness perfectly to who God is, to His glory. His aim is that He Himself, His own words, His own speech, His own life, would be conformed in the same way and bear witness to God's glory. God's revelation is not just given to us that we might have some random facts about the Bible put in our heads. God's revelation in all of creation and in his word is given to us that we might be transformed by it. That we might be conformed more and more to the image of Christ. And so, friends, as you receive the revelation of God, as you enjoy seeing the glory of god in creation and as you receive his revelation in his word don't don't just have it in your minds but be conformed by it live your whole life according to it when you stumble and you fall confess your sins but conform your whole life to it so that in and through your life you might bear witness to his glory Let's go to the Lord and close with a word of prayer. Father, we thank You for Christ. And we thank You that He obeyed Your will perfectly. And as He came into the world to dwell among men, He came also to explain God to us, both in his life, in his words, in all of his works, so that as we look at him, we see God in all of his perfection and beauty. And we desire, Lord, that as you, by the Spirit, through your word, conform us into the image of Christ, we also would be able to bear a true witness of who You are in the world. That our lives would be conformed to bearing the same witness as creation bears to You, as the Word of God bears to You. Ultimately, Lord, so that through all of these witnesses, the witness of creation, the witness of Your Word, the witness of the testimony of Your people, You might bring more people to Yourself.